Well, welcome to Fill in the Blanks. We're getting ready to take a walk on the dark side of human nature, and I'm saying that because we are going to be talking about cults. There are thousands and thousands of active cults operating in North America today, and it is dark. These cults ruin people's lives. They end some people's lives. Some of these you know about, everything from Jonestown to Nexium, which has been in the headlines most recently. But we have a very special guest today because there is a world-class expert, the guy that is the expert on cults, and that is Rick Allen Ross. He's the founder and CEO of the Cult Education Institute, CEI, and their mission is to study destructive cults, controversial groups, movements, and to provide a really broad range of information to the general public so people know what they're dealing with. They want to make this accessible to everyone that has a computer, can buy a book, and his most recent book is Cults Inside Out. He discusses all the cults and some organizations that you may not categorize as a cult until you understand how he defines cults. And look, he's been doing this since the early 80s, 1982, and he's helped thousands and thousands of families and done so many different interventions in getting people out of the cults. He's qualified and accepted as an expert witness in state and federal courts around the countries. He assists local and national law enforcement groups and agencies You've probably seen him on Today's Show, World News on CNN, Dateline, Nightline, 48 Hours, Oprah, Extra, Inside Edition. He's lectured at prestigious institutions like University of Chicago, Carnegie Mellon, Baylor, University of Pennsylvania and Philadelphia. And he's even been on Donahue. That's starting <laughs> to age you now when you've gone back to Donahue, the other Phil. Rick, thank you for taking the time to sit down with me and talk about this dark side of our society, because it is a big deal. Thank you for having me on, Dr. Phil. I appreciate it. And we've done some really good programs together. Uh, Some of the most riveting examinations of destructive cults uh, that, that I've participated in exposing has been with you and with your staff. I mean, the last one, uh, this Mother God, uh, in, in Hawaii that ended up coming back to Colorado was just a really intense experience. And I can't believe you got a cult leader to come on your show with her mother, her sister, her victims, her followers. Uh, everybody was on. And to have that kind of firsthand information and the way that you uh, opened her up and exposed some of her dark, darkest things that she had done. I think it was just amazing. Well, thank you for saying that. And thank you for assisting in that program, because I thought it was a real teachable moment in America about getting an insight into a cult like that, because usually they are so closed off. And it's really rare to get a cult leader like that to be willing to come on. I believe that She is exploiting others, and I think I have a really good example of how I believe that's true. My vision was chicken parmesan. 
So the Adams turn around on me and get me meatballs. I didn't say meatballs. I love meatballs. But I didn't say that. Chicken Parmesan. I get up every moment by you whores. My Adams. I'm like, I just need a tequila. Like, it takes a, like five rounds of whores to get me a tequila. I'm like, are you kidding me? You know what? You can take your half-ass god and shove it. I'm gonna take another tequila shot. I'll do that, bitch. Where's my tequila shot? <laughs> it's called evolution, bitch. Evolution, bitches. That behavior is absolutely exploitive. It's narcissistic. It's abusive. Tell me how that is not all about you. Okay, those words were for my husband. I was very upset at him about something. And we were just sharing an example of how uh, it was, wasn't directed towards anybody else but him and Adams. So, uh, yeah. I watched some of their social media leading up to that taping, and it was real clear that she believes herself to be the smartest person in the world. Well, God, I mean, she's God. And they were going to come on there and just put me in my place and set the record straight and just make sure everybody understood that they were right and the rest of the world was wrong. And I think they expected a huge wave of recruits to come after that show. And I don't think it quite worked out that way for them. No, it didn't. And the way that you exposed her through her own words and through her own actions and her cruelty to the members of her group, including children. I mean, I think it really just opened, I think it opened the eyes of a lot of people to how bad these groups can be. And I think that particular group is just really an awful group. I mean, on a continuum of one to 10, 10 being Jonestown, I would put Amy at somewhere at least an eight because of the control mm. that she exercises over those people and how much time they spend together and how she monopolizes their every waking moment. And that kind of social isolation, I mean, people just don't think clearly at all under that, that kind of influence. Well, I agree. It's very, very dangerous. And you've done over 400 cult interventions with a 75% success rate. And let's just call it like it is. These cult leaders, men or women, these are just con artists, right? That's exactly right. I mean, there was a, a clinical psychologist that uh, I was close to uh, during the latter part of her career, Margaret Singer. And she once told me, Rick, the only difference between a con man and a cult leader is that the con man runs the con and then skips town with the money. The cult leader keeps running the same con and the same people indefinitely. And I, I think you can see that when you look at these cult members and you see that they are acting against their own best interests, but consistently in the best interests of the leader who is benefiting from either their free labor, their cash contributions, 
sexual favors or whatever. And we can see that over and over again in these cults. It's, it's very sad because many of the victims are very kind and good people, uh, very sensitive, idealistic, and they're being lied to, deceived, and preyed upon by these leaders. Well, let's break this down for people, because I said we were going to kind of take a walk on the dark side and look at the dark side of society here. I think a lot of people might think, yeah, cults are an isolated thing that a bunch of weirdos get into, and I'd like to break this down and talk about it in real terms. And I think, first off, this is not as isolated as people think it is. I asked you this question once before, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you said it's a conservative estimate that there are 5,000 or thereabouts of these cults of one type or another operating at any given time in the country and or around the world and certainly on the internet at any given time. Is that a conservative number? That is very conservative. In fact, after we did the show, I did some more hunting around and I realized that that number of 5,000 was quoted in the late 80s and that currently an organization called the International Cultic Studies Association estimates that in North America alone, there are more than 10,000 groups that they specifically have received complaints about that they've logged as possible destructive cults or, or groups that have generated quite a bit of concern. 10,000 just in North America? Just in North America. And I think it's safe to say that there are millions of people involved in these fringe groups. Uh, it could be a therapy cult, a political cult, uh, a yoga or meditation cult, uh, a seminar selling uh, group like Nexium, or some of these groups claim to be part of a religion. They're splinter groups that claim to be Christian or Jewish or Buddhist or Hindu or Muslim. But in fact, they are groups that worship an absolute totalitarian leader is the defining element and driving force of the group. And there are just thousands of these groups. And, and Dr. Phil, it's just a money-making business. And many of these groups get tax-exempt status and are not only uh, tax-exempt, but they're protected by the First Amendment. So law enforcement is often reluctant to go in and check them out. Right. And when we talk about 10,000 using just a general term cult, and it can be a religious sect or different things that define their ideology. But as you say, it's defined by a totalitarian leader and set of beliefs and values. And we'll talk more about what defines them specifically. But this can be anywhere from what size to what size? Are we talking anywhere from 20, 30 people to thousands? I think it could just be two people. Do you remember uh, Brian Mitchell, who abducted Elizabeth Smart? Yes. And he only had one follower until he kidnapped Elizabeth Smart, and that was Wanda Barzi. And her family said that he was a cult leader, that he controlled their mother, their adult children. And I think we're seeing that very likely in the case of Chad Daybell and Lori Vallow, uh, who has been called cult mom. Her two children disappeared in Idaho. And Chad Daybell is a doomsday author who has written a number of books about the end of the world. And Lori Vallow followed him without question. And it appears that when Chad 
Daybell said that her children might be possessed by a dark spirit, that she went along with them disappearing. And then they found the two children buried on the farm of Chad Daybell in Idaho. The two are now in, in jail awaiting trial, but this would be a cult of two. One leader who claims to be a prophet and one follower who believes him. I met Lori in 2002. She had just recently married my brother. We were fast friends. She really felt like a sister and my kids absolutely loved her. She was Aunt Lolo. I never noticed any kind of red flags until our visit in 2018. One of the biggest concerns was she had this fixation on the end times. She went so far as to say that it's gonna be so scary, sometimes she thinks it'd be better to just put her kids in a car and go over the side of a cliff. Lori changed significantly. In addition to the end time stuff, I saw a lack of empathy. When my brother died, she didn't tell me that he had passed. My family didn't find out until five weeks after she couldn't be bothered. He didn't have a funeral. He didn't even have an obituary. It was like he just slipped away without anyone noticing. Lori seems absolutely infatuated with her new and fifth husband, Chad Dayball. Chad is deep into the teachings of the afterlife. Learning about his teachings gave me context for some of the crazier things she said. You know, it's interesting because I interviewed family members in that story and it's interesting how, even though it's just one or two members, how toxic it becomes because there are three or four untimely deaths in their family trees where her ex-husband was shot by her brother, supposedly in self-defense. Then her brother was killed shortly thereafter, theory being that he was getting ready to talk about what he had seen and knew. Chad Daybell's wife died in her sleep in her 40s. So you've got one, two, three deaths that occur in a very short period of time. Then the two children disappear and then are found dead. So here you've got five people who lost their lives in the orbit of these people. It's like death and destruction seems to be following them wherever they go. So you wonder just how much it would go had they not been shut down and arrested. Well, and, and also what you see in Lori Vallow, according to many of her family and old friends, that she had problems. She was married and divorced a few times. Her, her personal life was somewhat uh, chaotic, but she was considered to be a good mother. She loved her children. And it wasn't until she she was under the influence of Chad Daybell that things took a dark turn. JJ's grandparents, Kay and Larry Woodcock, say they were the first to sound the alarm about Tylee and JJ being missing. About a year ago, Laurie was gone for 58 days. Before she left, she indicated to Charles that she did not want JJ and she wanted out of the marriage. Charles filed for divorce. The morning Charles was murdered, he arrived at Lori's house to pick up JJ to take him to school. Charles walks in the house. There's Alex, Lori's brother. A confrontation 
occurred. Tylee came out of her room with a baseball bat and supposedly Charles hit Alex with the bat. Alex shot him twice with his pistol and Charles was murdered. When I saw the body cam with Alex, I, I didn't believe it for a second. Since yeah. Charles' death, we've only had three FaceTimes with JJ and the last one being August 10th. I first heard of Chad Daybell about a year ago. Charles told me that Lori was videoing herself dancing and sending the videos to Chad. Just when things couldn't get any crazier, we found out that Chad's wife, Tammy, died unexpectedly. Once Tammy passed away, our concerns for JJ's welfare became heightened. That's when we started calling Child Protective Services. We started panicking. Where's JJ? Where's Tylee? And the same thing with Wanda Barzi, who followed Brian Mitchell in Utah. Her, her adult children said their mother was a good mother, a kind person. But when she became involved with Brian Mitchell, she became his accomplice in crime when he kidnapped Elizabeth Smart, held her against her will, brutally assaulted and, uh, and, and hurt her. And, and Elizabeth Smart became very much under the influence of Brian Mitchell to the extent that even when she could have run away, she did not. And finally, when authorities found her, uh, they asked her, are you Elizabeth Smart? And she denied being herself. And it wasn't until they brought her to a hospital, she was reunited with her father, that she came out of this kind of fog that Brian Mitchell had brought her into. And I think what what the case of uh, Brian Mitchell shows and what and Elizabeth Smart and also Chad Vala, Chad uh, Daybell is how people can be manipulated and brought into a, a state of subservience and control that we would not imagine. Yeah, I interviewed Michelle Knight. She was one of the three girls that were abducted and held for 11 years in Cleveland. It's astounding how much mind control and how much fear is put into these people. And she talked about how her abductor at first had her chained to a pole with a motorcycle helmet on and a chain around her neck, and she was chained to a pole. And then after a time began to have all three of them have some freedom in this house, and then they would be in the kitchen and he would leave and the kitchen door would be left unlocked and cracked. And they would think, you know, wow, he's made a mistake finally. We can escape. And seconds later, he would come storming through that back door with a loaded gun saying, yeah, I was just sitting out in the backyard waiting to see if you were going to try to escape. And I was prepared to kill all three of you, you know. So it's like people don't understand how powerful this mind control can be when someone is so dominated and controlled and then people put up these mental emotional barriers where they're afraid to escape when it even looks like they could walk away they don't know they don't believe it. it's easy to say that when you're on the outside looking in versus on the inside where they've controlled your sleep your food your freedom whether you live, die, sit, stand, when you go to the bathroom, everything about it, it's such powerful manipulation. So that's what I want people to understand about this. There was a point that really stuck out to me when you said you saw yourself in the mirror for the first time. 
What did you see? What was the image you saw? I didn't see me. Y you refer to him as the dude because you refuse to say his name, which mm -hmm. I totally get. You stink, the dude said to me one morning. No Sherlock. Um, you'll get to know Michelle. It's... After almost eight months with no shower, I was pretty gross. My white skin looked brown. I had smudges of dried blood, dirt, and pee all over me. My legs were so hairy that they looked like a man's, and I never got used to the way I smelled. It was so bad sometimes that it made me gag. I looked at myself in the mirror above the sink. I looked hideous. I could not believe it was me. My brown hair was now shoulder length and was standing up in every direction. My eyes were bloodshot from months of constant tears. My face was pale because I hardly ever saw sunlight. Deep purple and yellow bruises on both sides of my face from all the times he had socked me in the head. I started to cry. Is this really happening? Will I spend the rest of my life here? Even though I had been in the house for about eight months, I still felt like I was trapped in some kind of horror movie, but seeing my bruised face told me just how real all of this was. You said that you were covered throughout your body with bites. What was biting you? Um, there were bugs that ate my skin. Yeah, they would just bite and eat away at mm -hmm. you when you were there. You write about Castro telling you wish he had kidnapped other girls, and one of them was a famous little girl, JonBenet Ramsey. What did mm -hmm. he say about that? He said he wished that he got to her first. What did you say when he would say things like that to you? I would tell him, think about your own kids. And would you want somebody to do that to them? He would ask me, why do I think that? And I would be like, well, think of it if you were in their shoes. How would you feel if somebody took your daughter? Did the same things you're doing to me. You wouldn't like it. And he would just sit there and say, you're stupid. And he'll just punch me right in the face. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, essential television. You know, a lot of times people think these cults are a bunch of weirdos out on the edge of town, but you made an interesting comment. A lot of the victims in these, they're anything but weirdos. They're nice, caring, compassionate people that are sucked into something that they believe is devoted to doing good and spreading love and compassion and care and they get gaslighted, and they find out once they're there that it's not at all what they thought, but then the cognitive dissonance sits in, and they try to justify what they're going through 
to justify the decision they made to come there, the psychology of them trying to resolve the conflict in their mind makes it difficult for them to admit the error of their decision going in. So these aren't weird people, generally speaking. They're people that are looking for a better life, and they just get conned, has been my experience. What do you think? Well, yeah. I mean, out of the hundreds of interventions that I've done, five of the interventions were, were, were with medical doctors. One was an orthopedic surgeon, another was an anesthesiologist. I also did an intervention with a, a, a young woman who is a, a clinical psychologist, and they were taken advantage of. They went through a process. I, I think there's this movie, The Room, that is so interesting. It, it's all about how someone can be manipulated through social isolation. And if you watch that movie, and you realize that reality for the little boy that has grown up in this room isolated from the world with his mother, who also has, has gone from a teenager to an adult being totally isolated, that when you embed people in a milieu like that, uh, you can control everything they see, everything they read, everything they hear. You are effectively controlling everything that goes into the mind you can control the mind itself. And I think we all struggle to kind of say, well, what kind of people join these groups? And I think it can be anyone. In my experience, it can be uh, someone from a rich family, a poor family, someone who's very educated, less educated, someone who is happy, but usually someone who's going through a rough patch in their life. And along comes somebody, could be a coworker, a friend, a family member, a romantic interest, and they say, hey, you're going through a rough time. How about trying this uh, meeting, this activity, this group uh, that I'm involved with that I think is really great. It's really helped me. And this person who is, who is, who is laying this out to you is a true believer. They really are convinced themselves. And then they usher you into this group. And you come in part, part because... Uh, you're hurting and you're looking for some relief. And also because you trust this person who is your friend, your coworker, someone that you admire. And so you come into the group and the group is deceptive. They're not telling you their true agenda. They're deliberately love bombing you and making you feel like everything is great and you're loved and accepted. When in reality, they have a much darker uh, purpose and agenda, which they are concealed. Yeah, so it's a bait and switch situation. Yeah, it's a bait and switch con. You, you, they bait the hook with idealistic things, uh, very appealing things. We're going to make the world a better place. We're going to save souls. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And then in reality, it's all about the leader. It's all about what the leader wants and subordinating yourself to that leader's whims. And that's eventually what, what you end up in. And the group be, begins to envelop you and isolate you to the extent that you're, you're not getting uh, alternate perspectives. You're not getting accurate feedback from anyone. And what you're in is this, this bubble, this echo chamber, and you're being bombarded constantly by what the group's 
uh, beliefs are, what the group says is real, and you have no sense of, of reality testing objectively for yourself, and you become increasingly reliant on, on the group and the group environment to determine what is right, what is wrong, and what is real. Well, let's talk about how that works, because I want people to kind of look at the anatomy of this seduction. And I think this is so timely, because right now, in this extended and prolonged quarantine, where people are experiencing much more isolation, Dr. John Churbin from Harvard Medical School and I conducted a survey recently polling parents about what they were observing in their children. And this was fairly early on in the quarantine. And we're seeing statistics now out of CDC and other government agencies that are polling and tracking this. But there's a definitely a spike in depression, loneliness, agitation, anxiety, just really emotional disturbance and pain as people who are basically social animals are being more isolated and having the added pressure of financial ruin hanging over their heads. And they're certainly feeling more disenfranchised. You add to that all of the very understandable demonstrations about the systemic racism that has been brought to the forefront of the narrative in America, as well as all of the political upheaval that we've had, there are a lot of people really feeling disenfranchised right now, and they're looking for a better answer. And I think because of the depression, anxiety, this fight-or-flight response that a lot of people are experiencing, there is an increased vulnerability to a better story, that if somebody comes along and they offer a better alternative. Hey, I understand the world's falling apart, but over here, we love each other. We love you. We've risen above all of this. And what you're saying is that's what happens with, we use the term love bombing, where you get somebody in and at first, you're the center of attention. All of a sudden, you're not isolated anymore. Everybody loves you. Everybody's complimenting you. You are the man or woman of the hour. And it's like everybody's there to see you. And they're complimenting you on your thinking, your dress, your personality, your being. Everybody's loving you and making you feel a sense of belonging. And I strongly believe the number one need in all people is acceptance. And the number one fear is rejection, which are synonyms for failure and success, of course, but they get you in there and make you feel like, hey, you have found your home. This is it. Somebody you trusted, as you say, may have told you about, and then you get there and it's like, what a nice bunch of people. And they're playing music and they're serving food and it's like happy hour and everybody's dancing and having a good time. It's great. I was a member of the Tony Alama Church. Just one day out of the blue, my sister called me up, told me about this church that she was in and how her life had changed. She wanted me to come down there and visit. This seemed like a normal church. You know, everybody seemed really happy and friendly. It really can make a person think, hey, this is what I need right now. Tony Alamo, he's their God. I absolutely adored Tony. I love this man. He's so godly, and I just want to be so like him. 
to even meet him or talk to him was like he felt like you were blessed by God to just see him because that's how much everyone looks up to him. There were rules. You could not go anywhere by yourself. You had to have permission to go shopping, to go to services, to stay home. You're not allowed to have a magazine. You're not allowed to have a radio or DVD player, any of those things that keep you in tune with what's going on outside of the church. We couldn't wear shorts or t-shirts and we couldn't wear nail polish or any makeup or lip gloss, no jewelry at all. My ex-husband, Don, he was like a complete stranger and he went to the pastor, Tony, and asked for my hand in marriage. And that's how it's done there at the church. I was married to Don for 10 years. He would get angry and yell at me. Instead of getting punished, like grounded, like a normal kid, he would get taken off of eating for weeks at a time. A lot of the times I was really weak and I passed out one time when I was playing with the rest of the kids in the church. Tony had about 13 wives. He picked certain girls and then come to his house and go swimming in his big pool. I went to his house for a pool party. He would call us over sometimes and talk to us. He asked me my name. He asked me if it would be cool to live with him. And I didn't say nothing to him, so he just told me to go back to the pool. He takes the beautiful girls, the special girls. He likes eyes and hair, certain things about them. He tells them, I have a big bowl of candy bars beside my bed. So all these girls just start going up there and staying with him. I thought, if it's in God's word, I agree with it. But I don't know how I feel about you taking girls. Tony Alamo had said that I was a threat to his church. I started asking myself, why is he the only one who can have more than a wife? Why is he so special that we're living in trailers and he's got, you know, Olympic-sized pools? The more I questioned my husband about it, my husband would show up with a paddle. And the last time, I thought to myself, that's it. I'm out of here. I grabbed my children and we walked to this woman's house and I asked her to please call a taxi. I was leaving. This van pulls up with members inside of it. And they're yelling at me and trying to grab me and pull me away. And they're telling me, what are you doing? Are you crazy? Your kids are going to go to hell. You're going to go to hell. And I turned around and looked at that sister. And I said, you go to hell. And I jumped in that taxi. What they don't tell you is what their real purpose is, what their real agenda is, what's behind the door. And if you wanted to reality test that situation, you would more or less respond and say, look, you know, I think you people are great. This is wonderful. You're very nice people, but I'm not interested in joining your group. I'm not interested in learning about your training courses or whatever it is that you're offering, but I do like you people. And then just like a light switch, click, it's off. They're no yeah. longer uh, loving you, uh, seemingly unconditional uh, love and admiration. Instead, they, they kind of just go blank because their, their, their agenda is to recruit you. And it's highly conditional love as opposed to really unconditional love. And I think the other thing about this whole shut-in quarantine that we're going through is that a lot of us are spending a lot of time online. We're spending a lot of time on social media on Instagram, on, on Twitter, on Facebook. We're watching videos on YouTube, on Vimeo. And guess what? All of these groups that have been called cults pretty much understand the power of the online social media. They have indoctrinational videos on YouTube. They, they have a presence on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. If you're a parent, and you have a kid who's staying home with you, you need to know where your child is going online because they may come up against one of these groups. And I have, I have had complaints from families that, that say that my family member has been recruited and indoctrinated online. And then the next step is PayPal. 
start giving the group money uh, online. And I had one family where a young man who had access to a, a trust gave $25,000 in 30 days to a, to a cult leader that he met online, never met in, in person, and who was manipulating him through YouTube videos, guided meditation, everything online. And I think now with the with the uh, pandemic and people being uh, isolated, being at home, that becomes another dimension to this whole issue of cult recruitment and influence. Yeah, and we used to have these commercials. There'd be a little bell ring and say, it's 10 o'clock. Do you know where your children are? Well, it's 10 o'clock everywhere now because they can be with anybody, anytime, anywhere. You think they're back in their room doing their homework. They could be online talking to one of these cult leaders or watching one of these indoctrination videos or live sessions, and they're promising the world back there. And I've seen it in some of these multi-level marketing groups where they get somebody to come and sign up to be a salesman, these downlines, then they take them to these big conventions and sell them $20,000 worth of tools to get rich quick, but it's a big party and they, you know, have a big stage and elephants come out and it's like a circus and everybody gets all lathered up and they take these people for their life savings and the only thing they ever sell is to each other, but they get them in that short-term time frame, that moment, that high, and fleece them for a lot of money. And in these cult situations, it doesn't stop. It just keeps going and going and going. So what we're talking about is what can start is just like a seeming night out, attending an educational group, attending a social hour somewhere, but it has a very dark agenda. And after you bite on the bait and the hook is set, the next thing they do, and some of them involve drugs. I've dealt with a couple of these where they clearly were drugged, and the number one tool of the abuser is isolation. So they start to strip away all the ties to the outside world and get you where your only input is from the group, and that's a big tool for them. You're not acceptable to God. And he said, depart from me, because I never knew. I never knew you. I became a member of the Aggressive Christianity Missions Training Corps when I was 12 years old. My parents were friends with Jim and Deborah Green, and they started um, having Bible studies with them. We were referred to as God's Army. At the beginning, they would have sermons. Then they started um, casting out of demons. There would be a lot of coughing and gagging, speaking in tongues. They appointed themselves to be generals, and they assigned ranks basically on how dedicated people were. Every minute of our lives was controlled. The Greens ordered marriages. When I turned 17, they told me to get married. Deborah advised me that the Lord wanted me to be off of birth control. You didn't think for yourself. You were told what to do. We were instructed to cut off our family, our friends. Oftentimes, we were in the same room, and when they would answer the door, they would tell the family members, 
that we were not there. Deborah Green claimed to hear directly from God. The Greens had the mentality that children were to be seen and not heard. I was instructed to whip my six-month-old son with a belt on his bare bottom because he was being disrupted during a service. I whipped my son because I was instructed to. I was afraid of Deborah Green. I did it because I was told to, and I knew it wasn't right. Innocent little baby get beat. Jim Green announced to all the members that one of us was going to be judged, forsaken by God, and that that person would wish that they were dead. The following morning, there was a group meeting, and Deborah Green announced to everybody that God had forsaken me. And she knew that was a lie. My mother was judged because she committed spiritual adultery. And I didn't know. I didn't know what it meant. And I was too afraid to ask. And I was terrified. I was not allowed to see or talk to my children for six months. There was a shed in the backyard. I was ordered to move into that shed. There were no windows in the shed. It was full of mildew, and you couldn't stand upright. No bath, no shower for six months. I was excommunicated. Rebecca was under their mind control for so long. I'd be living in drugs. I'd be, be living in filth if we had not met the Greens. I have basically put the cult behind me, but unfortunately, they're still in my dreams. I don't think that it will ever stop. It's really sad. Well, yeah, and and that's what Charlie Manson did. Uh, he would isolate people out at Spa Ranch. He would have them use hallucinogenics. He would claim that he was using the drugs with them when, in fact, he wasn't. And then he would manipulate them in that altered state of consciousness, and he would plant his suggestions about how they should view him, how they should view the world. And they ended up being weaponized by Manson and, of course, murdering people. And Charlie Manson would always say, well, you know, I wasn't there. I didn't really murder anybody. They did. And in reality, he had weaponized them and used them like, like a gun, like a knife to kill people, innocent people that he targeted. And, of course, they all went away to prison for the rest of their lives. Uh, first, they were sentenced to death, and then their sentences were commuted. And even though the parole board has uh, approved Leslie Van Houten, uh, one of Charlie Manson's girls' parole, repeatedly, the governor of California will not sign off. Uh, not uh, not uh, because the horrificness of those crimes, uh, the, the gore, the intensity of it, I don't think anybody will ever sign off on a parole for any of those people, and they will die in prison. In the same sense, uh, Keith Ranieri, who we're now reading a lot about, who was the head of Nexium, uh, he had a group of women that would do anything for him. Uh, ultimately, they would uh, become his slaves. They would be branded with his initials, with a cauterizing iron. And I believe that he intended to eventually weaponize them to do his bidding and dispatch his enemies. Uh, now, Keith Ranieri is sentenced to 120 years in prison. One of his followers, a Seagram's liquor heiress, who inherited hundreds of millions of dollars, is, has been sentenced to seven years in prison for enabling him. And a television star, Allison Mack, who was in Smallville, uh, she became the mistress of the slaves, uh, his pawn, in recruiting women and holding them down, literally, while they were branded. 
She is now facing sentencing along with others who have pled guilty that were his followers. Yeah, so if you rise up in the hierarchy of the cult, you can wind up being liable for their bidding, the things that they do. And, you know, to really become indoctrinated, you have to lose a sense of self and they have to break down your identity. Talk about how they go about doing that. Well, they give you a new name. You have a new name in the group. They tell you to cut your, if it's an extreme group, they may have a, a clothing that they wear. Like, for example, Bhagwan Tree Rajneesh, uh, the Rajneeshis that you see in, uh, in, in the documentary uh, Wild Wild West, you, you see that they all wore orange, that they all looked alike. And what he was doing was breaking down their sense of individual identity that they expressed through what they wore, how, how they appeared. And he was making them all very uniform. We also saw that in Marshall Applewhite's Heaven's Gate, the group that committed suicide near San Diego, 39 members killed themselves uh, along with their leader, Marshall Applewhite. They were all wearing exactly the same clothes. They all had the same unisex haircut. He had taken away their individual identity and created this kind of cloning of himself. And I think that's what a lot of cult leaders see. They want to clone themselves. Uh, not necessarily the way the follower looks, but the way the follower thinks. And they see themselves as the prototype, uh, the, the, the master mold, and they want people to think like them, have the same worldview, and uh, mimic them and follow them in every way. Yeah, and to do that, they've got to take away, as you say, their old identity. So they get rid of their clothes, they put them in new clothes, they give them a new look. Everything is different, so they don't have any ties. So if somebody from their family saw them on the street, they would look very different. Well, that is, uh, and, and this would be more extreme cults. And then, of course, if you want to isolate the member even more, you draw them into group housing, a compound. In my experience, the more extreme the demands of the group, the more extreme measures will be taken by the group to, to influence and control people. So what you also see if you're a family member and someone is involved in a cult is the social isolation. Their communication is becoming less and less, especially if you ask uh, critical questions. Uh, they may abandon old friends. And what you see is this kind of increasing social isolation where they're embedded in the group and their life is dominated by the group. Next week on part two of Danger and Warning Signs of Cults. They took 400 children out of that compound, but they didn't know what to do with them because these children had no life outside of the cult. They had no family, no friends. Their whole world was in the cult. And eventually a judge ordered that they would have to be returned to their families because no one knew what to really do with them.